A Pitch for Change is a podcast about what it takes to create a successful business that also has a positive social impact. I'm Amanda Capito. Last episode, we left off with Loombrick figuring out their business model. Just as a refresher, they decided that with local farmers, they would have a rent-to-own system in place with their solar pellet-making machines, and then they would buy those cooking pellets from the farmers and sell them in bulk to places like schools and hospitals in Cameroon. Now, a week ahead of the big pitch day, the World Vision Social Innovation Challenge sets up a practice pitch for the shortlisted teams. Right after, I hopped on a call with Judith. Tell me how today went. I don't even know. I, I feel like we underperformed today at the pitch. Um, I'm worried that the business model is still not strong enough for an, like an impact investor to uh, invest in it. Only because um, we, we did our you know, presentation and they, they were just kind of silent. We asked them, you know, so how can we improve? Um, and I think for them, the most skeptical part was that um, it's just a lot of work convincing both the farmer and the customers. There's a lot of stakeholders involved, and they didn't know if the farmers would be easy to get convinced just because, you know, you're giving them this machine um, and you're they don't know how to work it. They there might not be any uh, revenue for them. So they were saying, you know, really figure out like a profit structure. Um, and a financial model. Okay, and how did Sarah feel? Like, do you feel like she felt the same way? I think I think we both walked out of that knowing that we needed to do more work. A big part of launching a social enterprise like Loombrick is that you have to make your business work in two areas. Your home country, which is where you need the funding and support, and your market country, where you need to understand the business landscape and how to work with local governments. One social entrepreneur who's been dealing with this for a long time is Jason Gray. I think for any social entrepreneur looking at developing markets, it's it's often the easiest thing is to deal with is the is the customer. It's the government uh, regime, uh, regulatory challenges that often become very challenging. Jason is the co-founder of Sun Farmer, a business that's bringing solar energy to Nepal. We uh, we have become much more patient in dealing with uh, bureaucracy and having people stand in line for a long time to get things done. And so I think Nepal will continue to be challenging because of that. I think the, the nice thing about solar is it allows probably some not only in leapfrogging from uh, us on access to power, uh, but also leapfrogging some of the regulatory and bureaucratic hurdles that exist. It eventually becomes so cheap you just don't even need to deal with the government. You can just go get the panel or the system and install it yourself. If you're not familiar with leapfrogging, Jason just means that developing countries can skip some of the early iterations of solar panels and go straight to using the latest and greatest stuff, which has likely already been tested in places like Canada. I might as well warn you now, we're not only going to be talking about iterating this episode, we're also going to be talking about solar energy. If you're not a believer, just know that you might be by the end of the episode. It's already self-evident around the world that, you know, how much how much power is increasingly coming online, that solar uh, in different markets, you know, the competitive power bidding processes where gas and coal and solar compete with one another and solar is winning you know it's just it's just a matter of mapping out as the solar panel prices go down and what the economics are and more geographies are being opened up all the time 
And the success stories are pretty amazing. Our first projects were six health clinics in uh, western Nepal. Uh, they were very, pretty small systems. There were only a few kilowatts, which would be the equivalent of what you might see on a family home in Ontario. Uh, so fairly small systems, but it was the first time they had light, first time they could run some basic equipment. The clinic's primary uh, setup was maternal health, and so it was birthing centers off for the community, and it was often a huge issue and quite dangerous going to some of these uh, maternal health clinics at night because of snakes and because of water and because of other things. But now they had lighting, and it wasn't as much of an issue to go to a woman in labor, not waiting for daybreak to go to the clinic to have uh, have a baby. And so it hit home for me, obviously, having a growing family. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was uh, great to see just all of a sudden, just instantly, you know, the community was just very excited that, you know, from a maternal health standpoint and infant mortality, it instantly had an impact on that. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And so the, the mm-hmm. future that you think that would be ideal with solar, like, what do you see? Uh, yeah, just I... I I've drank the juice on solar for many years. So I love to see it everywhere. It just, it just makes so much sense. I think the, the power of it being, uh, you know, uh, distributed in nature, there's some really interested community solar projects that are occurring in North America for neighbors to be able to trade power if one needs more at a certain time and one needs less. There's just so many things that are happening that, you know, I, we really see solar just being being everywhere. Uh, for uh, Sun Farmer, our goal by 2020 is to be in five countries and have that self-sustaining model that we've set up in Nepal replicated elsewhere. And right now, we're we're spending a lot of time in Ghana looking at that market, trying to figure it out. It takes uh, you know uh, a lot of time, and that's what I certainly recommend to a lot of entrepreneurs. Is, you know, you got to get on a plane and you got to spend a lot of time in the market. So Lumbrick seems to be right on track. Sarah is already preparing to go to the field, and their plan is to have a solar-powered pelletization machine. This kind of work is exactly what industry experts are looking for. As much as there are fantastic engineers, if you can apply uh, those fresh minds uh, into something that is doing good, it's, uh, it's, that's a beauty, right? There is still so much that has to be discovered and to be invented, and uh, we need those inventions, and we need them fast. That's Paolo Macario. He's the CEO of Silfab Solar, which is a company that makes solar panels. And the way he talks about them is poetic. The beauty of uh, solar is that uh, as much as you're providing a 25-year warranty, it's supposed to last almost forever, right? So, and it does not require much uh, um, maintenance. But uh, it's always a pleasure to go there and see this expensive solar panel on the side of the hill near a lake. It's, uh, it's a beautiful sight. The Italian accent also helps. Now, we'll be hearing more from Paolo in the next episode, since he's one of the pitch date judges. So I wanted to learn about his motivation to get into this space. I got into solar maybe 10 years ago after a career in automotive, and uh, I would say mainly driven by the desire of doing something better and uh, the push from my own three kids that... uh, we're, uh, we're all into sustainability, so, and... Uh, and, like, so what do you think drives them, or, and how does that drive you? Like, what's that, is there, like, a burning desire to make the world a better place? Well, the, there is, a, first of all, a, uh, an atonement and an apologist to the fact that we screw it up to a certain extent. Uh, at least our generation made a lot of bad stuff to the world, so there is a desire to try to fix what we, what we did wrong, and certainly there is a desire of... Uh, 
helping our future generation in uh, having some hope uh, in what uh, what we leave them so and is a fantastic at least the business that we are in that is uh, producing solar modules and we make almost a million of them every year Paolo then gave me a tour of the Silfab building where I got to see the solar panel production lines and the plant is what you see in here so Wow, it's huge. Every 60 seconds, typically, there is a panel coming out, or a bit faster than that, and uh, we run uh, pretty much 24-7. Okay, we've all probably seen a solar panel. Huge black or maybe dark blue rectangles with a sheet of glass on top. Paolo takes me into a room with maybe eight or nine of them leaning up against a wall. They all look the same, but actually there are very different technologies. So I'll give you an example. This one it generates not only this called, let's call it the sunny side, where the sun with it, but also on the back uh, from any reflection that you have from a white roof rather than snow, rather than, so it generates almost 30% more than a standard solar panel. And so, so like, so for every cell here, there's like three strings. But for every cell there, is it just because it's a yeah, larger that's panel? Exactly, no, it's actually technical evolution, so the, you would like to see it's the It's proof that with every great uh, innovation over. is iteration, and it's something Lumbrick has been embracing. In their case, the idea of using waste to create cooking pellets isn't exactly new, but they're hoping to iterate in two ways. One, through the creation of the solar-powered machine, which Gael, their engineer in Cameroon, is working on. And two, with the actual design of the pellets, or as they sometimes call them, briquettes. This is where Gallia comes in. I produce a lot of briquettes. I think uh, we're talking upwards of 40, 50. And some of them, you know, were total flops. Yeah, and then yeah. I, what sometimes I like to do is, uh, when we were first starting out, we would meet with professors and get their input on it to see, you know, why is it not burning? Maybe you need... Over the past few months, she's been mainly working from the lab at McGill University, which is where she's also doing her master's in civil engineering. So I started doing a lot of research with the help of Judith, and we realized that McGill has a lot of research going on in the, in the areas of sustainable material, of uh, you know, bio-bouquetting, and we tapped into this resource. So we were, able to, you know, we were able to get help from a lot of people, and uh, we ran a few tests in, their, in the labs at McGill as well. So we headed over to McGill so she could show me what she's been working on. At first, Gallia catches me up about how they tested different materials to make the briquettes. Yeah, so this was our, our very initial testing was actually not done with corn, but done with uh, paper waste. We thought, you know, we have a lot of paper waste here, but the reality is they don't have any there, so paper waste wasn't an option. So you see, we tried things like this. She's holding up a briquette that's flat and rectangular, similar to the size of a checkbook. But uh, when we were slowly thinking about moving to a... Uh, agricultural waste we figured this was too big because this does not fit in their uh, stoves that they have we, we we had you know judith and sarah doing a lot of uh research of what's what's being used on site so we noticed that their cooking stoves are much smaller and this was too big that's when we started going uh, smaller and and uh, more circular so then gallia had to figure out the best supplementary ingredients and ratios so initially how we started is literally corn waste so we started off with the corn cobs so once you eat the corn, what's left of it. Were you and literally saving corns that you ate? Oh, literally. And these actually were because we started our testing in the winter season. It is hard to find corn waste in Montreal in the winter season. So we had to do a few grocery stores. We ended up eating the corn. And <laughs> oh, my gosh. So really, yeah, the first step is taking this waste and carbonizing it. You want it to be an absence of oxygen. Mm -hmm. and, that, and then what happens is this material will become very dark in color. And uh, once with this, you'll be able to produce your briquette. So... Here you see the furnaces that we use. This one goes up to around two, 300 degrees Celsius. 
This one goes up to much higher, we're talking 11, 1300 degrees Celsius. So I would say size roughly, you know, uh, a meter cube, roughly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, they're you know white in color, and they're, they you know we could think about them as ovens. So if I just open it up, you could take take a look at how it looks like on the inside. It's oh, just wow. really yeah, a furnace. Okay. And so like between these two machines, which ones were you using for your pelletization so, testing? So yeah, we started off using the one that burns at a, a lower temperature because you know we have to be mindful that in Cameroon they're not equipped to the luxury that we are here. So we tried to really recreate this, the, what we could actually use on site. Now, the way you would typically want to do it is use an actual metal barrel and carbonize that way, you know, let the fire burn in that barrel. But uh, I'm, I'm not allowed to do this here because we would create a, you know, fire. So, yeah. I, I, so I ended up, we ended up using this one for pallet skill testing. Now, obviously, uh, it's not the most optimal option, but we worked with what we had, right? right. Yeah. Right. So that's like, so the first step is taking that raw material and drying it, heating it up ideally carbonizing it. And how long does that take? It's a question of a few hours. Yeah. And it's, it becomes, a, I would say, burnt enough for you to be able to crush it with your hands. The next step is adding a binding component to make the briquettes stick together. Galia explains that she uses water and cassava, which would be easily available in Cameroon. The final step? We fill up the mold with the material, and then there is this piece that comes just to compress them, to try to squeeze all the excess water out. Yeah. It's squeezed in, and then we demold it right away. And then it sits outside until it's perfectly dry. So when it's sunny, it would take, I would say, you know, four, five days, maybe a couple if it's really sunny outside. Yeah. It has to dry completely. Yeah. And then once that's ready, they're ready to use. So you just tender. So like this is the final? This is the final product, yeah. This is what it looks like. Okay. And what it looks like is a large hockey puck with a small hole in the middle, which burns for about 10 minutes. And we thought it was interesting to have, to incorporate a hole in it because of that increased surface area. Now when you're... When you're igniting it, you, like the, the fire goes you know, in that, that empty hole and around, so it's easier for it to, to start catching fire. But they're not done iterating just yet. It has to also burn. It, ha it has to burn fast, and it has to burn long enough for them to be able to, to cook a, uh, one meal. So obviously they're not just using one briquette. I think for each meal they're using, they'll be using much more. But uh, I have a feeling that these are going to be, in reality, they're going to be much higher. They probably, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they're double, if we double the height. So we, we hit around, you know, eight to 10 centimeters. I leave Gallia to finish up some work. Let's circle back to that call from Judith. She tells me that she just received designs from Gael for their solar powered machine. Seeing the, the plans, they were very uh, detailed, um, obviously the work of a mechanical engineer. And so um, it just means that in the future, he probably will end up joining the team if, if it works out. I guess my faith in risk-taking and um, trusting strangers uh, has, has just been increased slightly. So I'm so glad that we took this risk and, um, yeah, this was the result of it. But will this progress be enough to get the team the grant money from the World Vision Social Innovation Challenge? The answer to that will be in the next episode. A Pitch for Change is a production of World Vision Canada. I'm Amanda Capito, a communications advisor with World Vision International. I'm the producer and editor of this podcast alongside Amanda D'Souza. Sound mixing is by Drew Garner. Josh Fulkema and Robert Garcia are advisors to the show. For pictures of Lumbrick's work and more information about the World Vision Social Innovation Challenge, visit worldvision.ca slash podcast. Mm -hmm.